Hello and welcome to That Federer Match, a new podcast hosted by me, Jack Kessler, and my good friend and erstwhile tennis coach, Lisa Gershon. Lisa, thank you for agreeing to do this with me after years of cajoling. Oh, Jack, it's a pleasure. Uh, in lockdown, one of the few highlights really of uh, the month with, without being able to hit tennis balls. We can talk about tennis balls. So we're going to be staying away from major finals and except for this moment, we'll never mention the 2019 Wimbledon final. Um, we're interested in niche matches, sort of preferably first round in Gestad sort of thing. Um, mm. Ideally peak Federer, but open to negotiations. And we are going to start with the first match that came to my mind, which is the 2005 Australian Open second round encounter between Roger Federer and Takao Suzuki. Lisa, what do you remember about this match the first time around? Did you watch it well, live? I watched it live, but it was quite a few years ago in 2005. But given my age, Jack, I have a few years on you. Um, I remember clearly that Chris Bradnam and Joe Jury were commentating, and it was thanks to Chris Bradnam big thumbs up to him that I actually became a coach in the first place. He mentored me. So that was always great to hear his thoughts as the match progressed. Um, and I remember Matt Belanda saying that actually before the match started that Suzuki would really have to do something different from the start. And, uh, and he did, because it was an extraordinary match uh, from the very beginning. Uh, I mean, let's put it in context. Federer's uh, number one, I think, in the world. And Suzuki's 203. 202 places behind him, but he played the match of his life um, from the very beginning. Uh, and I think he'd rarely played at that level before. So that's why this is an extraordinary match. It's a remarkable match. Um, but a couple of points really, I suppose, that intrigued me from the very beginning, that the big thumbs up with Federer with my coaching hat on um, is that he showed respect from the beginning to, to a man that he should have beaten quite comfortably on paper. But when the match began, you know, it was a different person out there. It was somebody asking questions, constantly chipping and charging, moving in. And I think the respect that Federer showed him says a lot about Federer and why we adore him. And Lisa, you are a professional. I mean, like my, my expertise <laughs> is just being sad enough to watch endless matches and highlights when when you see a player like suzuki play is it is it just that his suzuki's natural game caused federer a problem what what did he do was it was it just that you mm. know a good servant volleyer will always take time away even from the best player in the world playing at his best i think that's absolutely right i mean i think what suzuki did was enjoy himself. I mean, that was, his face says a lot. He, he enjoyed the challenge. Um, yes, he executed his game and he didn't stop moving forwards. I think sometimes, you know, players uh, can have the right tactical intent. They make a mistake and you don't see them do it again because they've been passed or they've, they've been wrong-footed. And so they stop moving forwards and, and sticking to their game plan just because they've missed something. And Suzuki just didn't do that. Suzuki immediately kept going forward. The difference was that he, when he didn't hit the perfect length or the perfect pace, um, he was punished. 
Federer passed him. Um, in effect, he sometimes had to hit two first serves to get to get into the point, but he did. And it was the fact that he continually did it right the way through. So you kept thinking, when's he going to have a wobble? I remember watching thinking, oh, come on, come on, this level, it has to change at some stage. Um, and Suzuki worked out how to use his slice backhand approach deep into Federer's backhand side and kept doing it. Uh, yeah, it was a great match to watch. You mentioned Suzuki was 203 in the world at the time. I'm pleased you said that because I have the same number. Um, Phew, I, that makes me feel better. <laughs> I looked on the um, what the ATP website would have to say about Suzuki today. And it, 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 it speaks volumes, I think. So first of all, you know, he's five foot nine. So for, for any tennis player, let alone a serve and volley, you'd think that maybe at five foot nine and weighing not much, he'd be a scrappy retriever, not, not a chance. It um, notes that he's from Sapporo, Japan. Uh, interestingly, it says he plays right-handed, unknown backhand. So the ATP even now don't know whether he plays single-handed or double-handed. We can confirm it's a lovely single-hander. Um, it is. I, I just wanted to also sort of, where would you place Federer at this time? So this is January 2005. Mm. This is really sort of nearly slap bang in the middle of peak Federer, capital P, capital F. So he's, he's number one yeah. by a very long way. He won in 2004, the Australian Open, Wimbledon, US Open, Dubai, Indian Wells, Hamburg, Canada, Thailand, and the Tennis Masters Cup, where he was so ahead of the rest of the field that the ATP actually filmed a TV show called Facing Federer, where the other top seven guys basically joke about how far ahead Federer is of the field. This is, and I, I sort of liken it to the unipolar moment uh, after the end of the Cold War, where it's the United States and no one else. Jack, that's a fantastic uh, summary of where Federer was at. I mean, it was before his statistically the best season, I think was 2006. So. But in 2004, he was invincible. And I think for somebody as young as Federer was then, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think he was 23 and Suzuki was 28. For somebody of, who was so relatively young, um, it was the variety of shots he had in his armory. He could do anything. And I think what impressed me watching the match, and I remember, was his choice of shots under pressure, um, and in split decisive moments, um, I, I don't remember the stats, but I know there were quite a few more winners to unforced errors. I think it was like 40 winners to Suzuki's 25. Um, it, it showed that Federer had the ability to think and stay calm. I mean, he didn't panic. He didn't panic under pressure. He just executed better than he thought he might have had to. But yes, he was, he was streets ahead in not just his physical um, footwork. We're not talking about footwork. I mean, I'm passionate about footwork as a coach. And I think it's often an underestimated feature of Federer's game that underpins his whole game is, is the work he does off court to make it look effortless. Everyone you know, marvels at um, his beauty and his resilience and his, his play. But there's an awful lot of work that goes into that. Yes, natural ability, you know, um, the, the dreaded word uh, talent, but behind talent uh, is a lot of hard work. And I think that showed right the way through this match. 
So obviously, you know, Federer, as we know, doesn't win this tournament, which is one of the reasons why this tournament... He doesn't, Jack. <laughs> it's a great shame. He, she, and I also feel, if we're going to talk about winning, it, it, you know, as a, as a Federer diehard, I still believe that maybe Suzuki deserved uh, the third set. You know, it, it would be nice to watch another set um, of that level of tennis, maybe even, maybe even two, but certainly I think Suzuki... Uh, deserved a set. Well, he gets yeah. a set off Federer eventually because they play in the 2006 Tokyo he, tournament. He, he does. So the first set? Was it the, the first, first set? Wins the first set. Federer only wins the match 7-6 in the third. So um, it almost, it breaks the narrative because you want that Australian Open match to be a total one-off man ranked 203 in the world, plays the match of his life against the greatest of all time. Um, and 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 that's that. But they play again, and, and he and he put up, he doesn't. It's not quite the same match, but it wasn't a fluke. It's it it wasn't a fluke. And I think one of the things we haven't talked about is again, you know, Suzuki has worked out how to take time away, which many many players could do, but also taking the angles away. A lot of the time he goes down the middle, he goes deep, but he takes away the running angle, and I think that's a smart play against Federer, um, not just in 2005, but in latter years, again, uh, you know, his ability to, will probably come onto his forehand at some stage, Federer's forehand, to go anywhere on it, especially on the run. <laughs> Watching the match on YouTube, you know, it's, for anyone who watches it, it's very grainy. And I do Absolutely. recommend it. I, you got to, yeah, you got to, definitely got to get your glasses on. And sometimes if you really want to see it clearly, watch the highlights is my tip. Uh, it's clearer. <laughs> but if you could somehow, you know, the magic of modern technology and turn it into 4K and change the colour of the court and update the hairstyles, give Feather a bit less hair, could yeah. it look like a modern day match or is it really uh, I, I, obviously situated oh, in the past? It's situated in the past for many reasons, but it doesn't mean it's not modern looking in a way that different eras, I think you would obviously see wooden rackets, different shapes of strokes. Um, I mean, Federer's backhand you know, looked, looked fluent and, and modern. Um, I think the use of slice has come full scale. I think you're looking at sliced forehands, sliced backhands. You're looking at so many similar tactical intents. So uh, could it look modern? Yes, uh, absolutely. I, I, I don't see it as an out of place match nowadays i think nowadays you'd have a bigger power base i think you'd see more sliding i think you'd see um even greater angles possibly even longer rallies of, of player retrieval turning defense and offense to an even greater level but the, all of the the grassroots are there for what we're seeing now it's just players seem to have got bigger fitter again five foot nine players now under six foot few and far between I just wanted to go through some of the stats from the match. And I think the thing sure. that screams out to me is looking at Suzuki. And he so he wins 55% of the points on his first serve. He wins 62% of the points on the second serve. Now, he is he's serving and volleying on both first and second. Um, but why is he doing that? Why, why, why is he? I mean, because I think, I, I, okay, he, you know, he's having the match of his life. He knows he has to serve, in effect, two first serves. He knows his tactics. He's going to be going forwards on everything. And when you have that in mind as a player and you're thinking about moving forwards, uh, that's a great way to project, especially if you're uh, five foot nine, project yourself up and forwards more. And he knows it has to be that good. I mean, you say he, he he serves two first serves. 
and and he does serve brilliantly both first and second but he only he only hits three double faults in the whole match despite going for his serve that much uh, as i say it's it's could he've made if he did manage to do that throughout his career then we might not be talking about this match because he'd be a top 10 player uh, yeah, he had nothing to lose. And Federer, again, one of the enduring things about that match for me is his resolve to be respectful of his opponent on that day and to raise his game um, when he needed to, which was pretty much constantly. He constantly had to, to play well. And just looking at some of Federer's stats, seven aces, no double fault. I mean, there were long periods of his in his peakies where he just didn't hit double faults um i mean there is the classic so break points one four out of 11 i mean even in a phenomenal match nothing on it in the second round it's still absolute classic federer much less than 50 percent um break point conversion we'll not go into the reasons why but um i'm reassured that even back then he wasn't converting his break point opportunities yeah. But his serve, um, as you say, very few doubles. Um, I think it says, again, we go back to Suzuki on the day. Suzuki's returning, was it, he read it, uh, and it was exceptional. So why doesn't Suzuki achieve more in his career? We see, is it just the classic match of his, his life? Um, you look at the Suzuki, a really good first serve, obviously tremendous volleys, pretty athletic. He doesn't have the world's greatest topspin backhand, but can manoeuvre it really beautifully with the slice. Loves the slice lob. Why Why doesn't he crack the top 100? I don't know, Joe. That's a great question. Uh, I think that some players will have given him uh, more difficulties uh, with bigger kick, bigger topspin. We know that Federer you know, has less of that single-handed backhand. Um not the heaviest of topspin forehands because of his grip and natural swing shape. And that suited Suzuki's game. What was your favourite point of the match? I mean, the thing about peak Federer matches is there would always be <laughs> one Federer moment. There would just be uh... like a shot where you went, no matter how if he was playing brilliantly or very averagely, it was, did he just do that? Was it for you, was it that sort of squash shot forehand no look passing shot oh the one around the net where you just laugh uh, uh there's no big so game he did and you knew his career you... <laughs> season would he hit a shot around the net post it, most players do it once in their life uh, it's the shot he practiced it's a shot he practices and it's a shot you know he's going to make you know he's going to make that shot. Nine times out of ten, he's going to make it. I remember there was, in the opening game of the third set, Suzuki, I think, is serving, and he's covering the mid-court well so well. He's moved up. He's stretching Federer at the net, and Suzuki manages to hold it against Federer. I actually think it was those points that Federer didn't win but played so well. Um, he stretched Suzuki on points. I can't give you an exact point, Jack, but I can say that his for me, his choice of shot and the speed of the execution, the bravery to keep going for the passing shots and make most of them against a player who was volleying out of his skin, covering the court uh, wonderfully, very crisp volleys. Um, and he never panicked. I'm going to come back to that point. He didn't panic. He was love 30 down on the odd game. Uh, it could have been a break. It could have been a mini crisis. 
didn't panic, pulled it back, held his nerve. When did you first realise that this match was going to be extraordinary, that it could be the sort of match that 16 years on you and I would talk about and other people might even be interested in listening to? That's a great question, Jack. Um, wow. Uh, I think you have to go to the first set early on in the match. Uh, yeah, Suzuki does the impossible against Federer. He goes up a break at 3-2. Uh, and I think at that moment, you realise that this is going to be something special from a man, as I say, who's, who shouldn't be uh, a breakup and is. And then Suzuki... Uh, comes out to serve with the breakup and he hits double fault on his own serve, but he still has a point to hold his own serve. And there's an error from Federer on the way. And he's got a couple of points to hold serve and convert, but he doesn't. Federer hits some brilliantly executed passes. He wins that game. And then he breaks him straight back. The next, the next game he breaks him back with, I remember hitting us, uh, he returns from Suzuki a serve that Suzuki's fastest serve of the match is 131 miles an hour and Federer returns it to save the, the point and then to break Suzuki straight back. And I think it was at that point I pricked up my ears and started to watch more carefully. I mean, I think about that Suzuki match. I think about the Chris Bradnam commentary. I think about that match. I'm not going to say every week um, because, you know, we've, we've all got a lot on. But I think about it, you know, every few months for uh, and is that the power of Federer and the power of fandom? Is that due to the quality of the match itself? It, it should be such an innocuous match. And, and Federer has played, well, he's, 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 you know, hundreds, thousands. Um, thousands. Why, why is it so memorable? Because I, I, again, it's a, it's a lovely question. Because it, it tells you that anybody on any given day, within the top, you know, one thousand, five hundred, hundred in the world, um, can keep up with a great player. Um, the interesting bit is, of course, is for how long? Well, for one match is your answer, and so you marvel at the fact that a mere mortal like Suzuki can come along. And, and ask questions and push, push maybe the too strong word, but certainly uh, rattle and hold his own in three tight sets. Um, and I think that's what makes tennis exciting as a sport anyway, because anybody on their day can, can play well and perform well. But the joyous bit was that he stayed doing that nearly always in a match, some of Federer's early round matches against um, players at Suzuki level or higher, um, they were relatively straightforward for Federer. And I think part of that, to get back to your question, was Suzuki's tactical intent to move forwards um, was smart. And I'm surprised more players didn't follow immediately after that match doing that. They didn't look at that match maybe as often as we've looked at it. So Federer is playing with that famous red and white uh, paint job on the the racket the uh, Wilson N61 Tour 90 uh, the internet reliably informs me and he used it between just before Wimbledon in 2004 
and the end of 2006. And whenever I see that racket in YouTube highlights, which is really quite frequently, I feel safe that 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 the you know he's basically going to be brilliant. He's going to win every match bar the odd French Open final. <laughs> A few matches to Nalbandia, maybe. But ultimately, you are in safe hands. Um, the question that comes out from that little little reverie is, why is his forehand so good? In that era, in that period, what, what, are, what are the qualities that basically make it, you know, the best forehand the world has ever seen? Well... Where to begin, Jack? Uh, yes, about the racket. Um, uh, I think, firstly, you've got his talent, his timing, his brilliance, his movements, and all that we know and uh, enjoy. But also his grip. Uh, if we're going technical, it's not even a full semi-western grip where his hand moves round to close the racket head. It's slightly more eastern. So that allows him to pronate through his, his take back and it gives you a sort of whipping action, an acceleration um, through the ball. His load, if you look at Federer uh, and you marvel at how he generates pace and power, a lot of it comes from the lower body first. And then with his left arm beautifully straight out to the side, he's got uh, space um, to, to make that swing shape so that the longer, if you like, the swing, you know, the long levers, the further away he can create that whip that comes from the legs up through his body um, and and his wrist comes in last, add in a shoulder rotation and a, and a flick of, of the wrist at the end and the swing comes after that. Uh, it's poetry in motion when it's all fitted together. And most people can't do that because um, they're not strong enough uh, and they haven't done enough hours on court to make that timing effective on any ball coming to them. I mean, Federer it, it could hit his forehand of any ball coming to him and then make the decision on which would be the best choice. I guess my next question is to take it from the, the other side of things, which is he was all, even at his peak, he was a great shanker of the ball. You would watch mm -hmm. matches where he would be mm -hmm. utterly brilliant, but there would be, you know, mm -hmm. half a dozen times where the ball would go yeah. Yeah. off the frame but into the stands. Is that just because he was playing with a small racket? Is that because yeah. the racket had a... Partly the small racket, uh, partly because of the nature of that sort of shot where the timing through the entire swing has to be, you know, pinpoint accuracy or you get shank. Uh, there's very little margin for error with a racket head size of 90, uh, as opposed to a more modern racket, you know, 95, 97, 100. Um, it, it's it's a thing of beauty, um, and if the timing isn't quite there, it's going to it's going to miss by quite a lot. And what about the Federer backhand? It was obviously the shot throughout. It was the weak shot. I say weak, obviously, relative to an unbelievable serve and forehand, volley, movement, etc. But it was the weaker wing throughout that period. And really, whenever it went on that side, particularly in, in a big point, you did wince a little because you were like, you know, it's, I wish that ball was on, on, on his forehand side. To what extent was it a weakness and to what extent was, well, if you put that forehand or that backhand rather on the in the armory of a player with a slightly dodgy, if you gave that backhand to Radek Stepanek, who had a lovely 
double-hander and a, and a dodgy and seemingly technically deficient, very flat forehand. If you gave Stepanek <laughs> Federer's single-handed backhand, are we waxing lyrical 10 years on about Radek Stepanek's backhand? Oh, possibly. I think I'd like to talk about Federer's backhand more, though. Just saying, I think, uh, a little bit harsh, Jack, you know, I think... Um, I think I think one of the things is, as his career's progressed, his backhand's got better. Um, I think he's trusted it more. I think if you look at the very early stages of his career, nothing to lose. He's not yet number one in the world. He's not yet arguably the greatest player of all time. Um, there's a freedom to it and a confidence with it. And I think as as the players uh, biting at his heels, coming up behind, improve their speed, their top spin. We've talked about you know Federer's slightly flatter forehand in relation to some like Nadal, lots more spin. Um, his slice backhand was a weapon uh, throughout his career until rotations and things kicked up higher, causing more problems. And I think that's when you might have winced a bit and wished he'd had a double-hander. Interestingly, he, when he was asked by Mark Petchy a few years ago about his children, he's got two sets of twins, as we know, uh, whether they'd have single-handed backhands or double, uh, it, it, the amount was immediate double all round. Uh, and when asked why, because he has you know, quite a good single hand backhand, he said it's too difficult. It's taken me a lifetime to get quite good at it. And even now I struggle. So I think he's answered it himself. There's an interview I remember Federer having, or at least I remember it secondhand, where in his sort of early peak years, he's asked, what's your biggest fear? And the answer he gave was that I might wake up one day and the forehand isn't there which is, on, on the one hand, kind of an obvious answer. It is greater strength. On the other, sort of endearingly, boldly honest. And does, I, I, obviously, we, I'm keen to keep this sort of on the, on the 2005 match, but, but does that happen in later years he wakes up in the forehand and not even that much later but he, he wakes up and it's just not there or at least not there in the same way it was before yeah but we've had this discussion jack and i think it's uh i i don't remember the interview so it might have been a dream um <laughs> i'm not i'm not i'm not sure I'll, I'll plead the fifth on that one um what i think happens throughout the career is that that it's not even so much that federer's forehand um, misses or shanks. Other players put him under more pressure. The ball coming to him is different. You know, the, the game evolves. And with something that's that uh, fragile because of its brilliance, it could be more exposed. And I think there's moments where that happens. Um, I mean, interestingly, if we're going to go back to the 2005 Suzuki match, um, in the opening few games, yeah, the, the errors are on the forehand. They're not on the backhand side. He misses, I can't quite remember, but he misses a couple of forehand returns. Uh, and it's the forehand that often has the issue, not the backhand. Does that change in his career? Um, does his backhand become stronger? I think it does. Uh, but I wouldn't say his forehand changes radically. I think that that it's forced to change um, because of the players he comes up against. I'm really struggling with that that one, by the way, because the more I think about it, <laughs> just off the record, the more I think, no, I've come to realise that it's not the forehand technical that's the problem. It's the emotional. It's 
it's the lack of trust in it that's changed. It's not the technical forehand that's changed. It's knowing that you're going to have the opportunity to finish the point or build on the point. The Federer serve in January 2005. How good is it? How integral is it to his success in this it's, match and in, in, in the tournament in the year? In this match, it's it's as important as it's always been. I mean, Federer's serve uh, technically is magnificent. His timing, his whole, I'm not going to bore you with it, but the way in which he prints goes up to the serve and the spin that he is able to have. It, it It's rhythmic and throughout the Suzuki match it, it, it felt safe um, and it was powerful and accurate in a way that his, he develops as his career has continued it's the base um, you know of his game his serve and his forehand uh, and I think when he came out serving um, in the third set for the match having broken Suzuki at four four to go five four up and come out serve it's just straightforward. It's just a relaxing moment. I remember relaxing watching it because that serve is going to take him over the finishing line. Everyone always talks about the Federer serve as, you know, it's the classic line. It's not the hardest hit, but it's the most accurate. It's, it's the most accurate. It's Lisa, Lisa, why is it that I, I believe people when they say it, uh, but why is it the most accurate? Why can't, you know, if Andy Brother can hit it, Back in the day at 140, 150, why couldn't he also hit it on the line? Uh, he's not Federer. Um, Federer's uh, timing, um, his brilliance, um, he, I would say his genius, is to be able to, to, to perform that service action under pressure in a relaxed state. You know, the way he serves, you only have to look at the serve. It's a thing of beauty. He is totally relaxed in this. It's not overbearing. The knee bend isn't extreme. He doesn't move his back leg up in, in towards his front leg as the lever. He simply levers off both. So his balance is a wider base. Um, uh, there is talk that people who don't move their back leg forwards are less able as players. So I would rebuke that because uh, I'd say Federer's serve is... is perfection in many many ways it may not be the fastest it doesn't have to be and in that period of time that, that we're talking about the sort of the 04 to 07 i mean we know that his breakpoint conversion even at the top of his game was never any good but his breakpoint saved if you I've, uh, if you take at random any breakpoint that he faced the odds are he's hit an ace or a service winner yes his serve is his get out of jail card. If he's serving, you know, you're, you're feeling safe throughout the career. Get back to why. Um, because the timing is perfect. Federer's great skill at that time was he was the greatest defensive returner. So pre-Djokovic, you have everyone talks about Connors and Agassi as the great returners of their generations. And then Federer comes along and Roddick knows all too well you'll hit a serve at 1.30, somewhere near the line, and Federer will chip it back onto the baseline and you're at neutral when you, you really deserve not to be at neutral. Um, obviously, Suzuki as a serve and volleyer to an extent takes that away from Federer. 
Is that and how successful is he in doing that? And is that an underused weapon that other players at that time should have yeah. employed? Don't yeah. let Federer. This is pre Neo backhand <laughs> RF 2.0. He's not going <laughs> to smash a back topspin backhand return at you. Are you letting letting him get away with hitting a high percentage return? Short like answer. Onto, onto <laughs> short answer. Yeah, yes. Well, sure, because it was a long question. So short answer. Short answer. Yes. Suzuki's tactics uh, and execution, uh, importantly, were fantastic. Federer returned uh, beautifully, but because Suzuki was coming forwards, it took away time, and it just kept giving Federer less time, a little bit more pressure, particularly on the backhand wing. Um, and he pins him back just enough to make Federer come up with something a bit more than if the server stayed back. Let's give Federer that chance, get back on level terms from the serve on the third shot. Um, and then the server can't build as easily as, as somebody like Suzuki, who was brave. He was a brave heart. He just kept coming forward. What do you make of the Federer look? So I'm talking about that, that blue shirt. Um, with the quite low zip, um, displaying a lot of chest and the the, the uh, white. Love it. <laughs> Works for me, Jack. Works um... for me on every level. I think one of the things is sorry, I can interrupt you, but yeah, Federer uh, never seemed to sweat much. You know, superhuman. Yes, his 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 bandana would be soaked, but he he still looked like he wasn't working too hard or trying too hard. And that's something that's I've always marveled at. Is it his fitness level? Is it because he's Swiss? I don't know. Maybe somebody could let me know. But he never looks uh, as if he's having to work or sweat too hard. That never, Love the that blue that never did, the, did it for me because I, I think back, the sweatiest man is obviously Nadal and the sweatiest man <laughs> is the 2009 Australian Open final. And Nadal sweats through that black, mostly black shirt within the first two games. Um well, that'll teach you to wear black shirts in very hot weather, but yes. Uh, so, um, I mean, the the, the the sweating or lack thereof was never, wasn't the reason that sort of brought me, me to Federer. What did you make <laughs> the, the look? So it was only in um, end of 2004 that he chopped off the ponytail. And I remember reading, I think it was in the, something like the Sunday Times magazine, but basically words to the effect of he chopped it off because... He's more marketable as um, this is pre man buns in um, in Hackney. Like he's more marketable um, as a man with without a ponytail, effectively. Um, and so he's, he's he he chops that off. He wins the tennis masters cup in 04. Um, and he's got this almost. I feel like he looks a bit like Mufasa in The Lion King, like that beautiful mane of hair. Um, slightly too long because he keeps fiddling with it um is this sort of if it's peak federer play is it peak federer look well as i say i i think at the time uh the look was fitting he was evolving into somebody um who who's always he's always liked clothes he's always liked uh taking great interest in in clothes both on the court and off the court um, I thought I found it very attractive, uh, but then I could talk about that every single year, different look, growing. Um, the colour suits him. I think the zip is perfect, Jack. I don't think it's too low. Uh, I don't think it could be. <laughs> <laughs> and as I say, it's a sort of... It, it, uh, 
otherworldly. He's all the most mythical status. Yeah, you know, he walks on with it with an aura about him that I think he's had from a very young era with the ponytail, without the ponytail. Um, he's grown into himself. I think we've watched him grow as a person, as a player. But I think the toolbox was always there. The dedication to work hard was always there. The desire, I mean, to desire still to be playing because he wants to play, because he says, you know, he loves hitting tennis balls. When many of his um, contemporaries have obviously retired, you know, Saffron Ferreira, Xavier Melise, they all stopped. And Federer's still here. Feather, when Federer... Um, was won the match. I think he beat Del Potro in the quarters of the 09 Australian and he's interviewed by um, the great Jim Courier and he talks about playing Roddick who I think beat Djokovic in that in his quarterfinal and how he was excited to be playing one of his contemporaries because he feels pretty old out there and that is in 2009 yeah. which it is a long time ago. It's a remark when you when you just stop and think about that for a minute, and yes, we've got the the, the, the next generation of people coming through. He's gone through very many careers almost. He's had different hats, different lives, different outfits, different length shorts, different zips, different bandanas, different hair lengths, all of the above, and he's still here. You talk about fashion, Federer. I think he first met Anna Winter in the summer of two thousand and five. Um, and you, you, you know, he he does like his fashion, as you say, both on and off the court. I mean, one of the interesting things about Federer, I think he might was was Federer the first player to specifically have different clothes for a day and night session, and was that the two thousand and seven U.S. Open where he was Darth Federer under the lights because he was wearing his black and he I think he was wearing blue in the day session. You're so right. Your is that, is that yeah, my memory is. It was, and it led to obviously many other players copying and following suit on that. Uh, and again, it was, well, why wouldn't you? You have different light in the daytime, you have night lights. It's a different event. Um, it fits with his his obvious enjoyment of clothes and practicality. So um, it's not just a ploy to make more money like like Premier League football clubs today change their kits every season. Oh, as, a way, as an away kit season, yeah. and a home kit. No, I think and there's the definitely a ploy kit. there. I think there's a ploy there, but... But I'm not complaining. It's always enjoyable to see different colours on Federer. Lisa, thank you so much for joining and agreeing to be my glamorous co-host. Um, this has been the uh, Maiden uh, That Federer Match podcast. You can follow us on Twitter. Um, we're at That Federer Pod. Uh, you can uh, download us from apple and spotify and wherever you get your podcasts um lisa thank you very much for being here well jack it's been fantastic um maiden podcast indeed and on to the next one on to the next one and thank you very much for listening